As we continue worshiping a risen Lord, a risen Savior, Jesus Christ, let me invite you to open up His Word, God's Word, this morning to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. As we continue studying this portion of the Scripture, this morning we're in Revelation chapter 12. We'll be looking at chapter 12 over the next two Sundays, and today we'll be dealing with the first six verses. But before we look at this text, before we read this text, uh, let me pose a question to you. When you are gone, what will people say about you? When you leave this life, what will people say about, about you? You see, your life is a story. My life is a story. But our stories are only a small sliver of history with, uh, with no lasting significance, no, uh, no, no real meaning apart from a story that is bigger than our story. Our lives don't make a whole lot of sense if they're not situated in something that is bigger than you and me. And the Bible declares that there is something that is bigger than you and bigger than me, something bigger than us that gives us perspective, that provides meaning, gives perspective and meaning to our stories, to our lives. There's a story that reaches back in time and that casts forever into the future, a story that encompasses more than humanity. Even more than all creation, it's a story that includes a sovereign and superior God who is opposed by a sick yet inferior enemy who is destined for defeat and destruction. In church, our lives in the here and now as we live, as we walk here, only make sense in light of that story. And in a highly symbolic fashion, John tells us that story and he tells it to us in Revelation chapter 12. So let's look at it together. Let's look at the story behind our stories, this cosmic conflict that explains what we experience here. It's the story of God's Word. John tells it to us in a single chapter, so let's look at it together. And we'll follow our typical custom here. If you uh, would join me standing for the reading of, of God's Word. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. John the Apostle writes, he says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you this morning desiring to hear from you and desiring to be led by you. Lord, we know that your, your spirit is with us and we know that your word is alive. And Lord, we know that, that your word tells a story that's unified on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Lord, we come to you now desiring to be led by you, desiring to hear from you, to be instructed and corrected and encouraged and shaped by the truths of your word. So Lord, lead us to that end. It's in the name of Jesus, and for his sake we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What a story. When this 
highly symbolic account, John is telling the story of God's, cre- of God's people from creation to the present. And in fact, even beyond the present until the return of Christ, he's telling the story of, of God. He is telling our story. You know, if we're honest, our lives don't really make sense uh, apart from a bigger story. They don't make sense in merely moralistic or even rationalistic terms. You know, oftentimes, seemingly good people suffer uh, and seemingly bad people flourish. Some people live to the ripe old age of 95 or 100 years old, while others are tragically cut far too short. Much of the world today, uh, people live on less than a couple dollars a day, facing perpetual hunger and danger and preventable disease. Christians and other religious minorities in parts of the world encounter intense persecution or pressure to compromise. How do we begin to make sense of these things? My story, your story, our story, the church's story only makes sense in light of the story that John tells here in God's Word. Like a a peak behind a stage curtain reveals a a director and a stage crew and a, a cast of key players So this story peels back the curtain of the cosmic drama of salvation history and reveals some key players and their practices. So let's review them. First, uh, character. Character number one is this woman. A woman in labor, clothed with a sun, with a moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Quite an image. Character number two, an enormous and impressive red dragon, capable of great harm, watching the woman, ready to devour her child. And then character number three, a male child, a son, destined to rule the nations. Before we jump in, before we dive into the identity of of these players, we know John is using symbolism here, as he is in much of Revelation, because he tells us he is. He calls both the woman and the dragon signs. In other words, like his use of signs uh, in his gospel account, the gospel of John, to Uh, to point us to the identity and the power of Jesus as the Messiah. So the descriptions and actions of these signs point to something else. They point to something beyond what we see just here on the surface of the text. In fact, their identity is not self-evident from the text alone. We need some additional information. We need some information uh, to make sense of this, information that was readily available and known by uh, John's original audience. And so what might that information be? Well, at a minimum, it included mythological traditions of their day and knowledge of the scriptures. Uh, how many of you had to read or study at least a little Greek or Roman uh, mythology at some point in your education? There's a few hands and others that just don't want to raise your hand because I, I would imagine most of us did. I know I did. I'll be honest, I, I wish I would have paid a little bit more attention because John is using his audience's familiarity with some of those stories to depict the plan and power of the Almighty God. In other words, like all of Scripture, what we find here is not random. It's intentional. It's purposeful. It's thoughtful. John is borrowing elements of a popular myth in the Greco-Roman world of his day about a dragon named Python who was out to destroy uh, the, the child, Apollo, of a pregnant woman, attempting to destroy both her and her unborn son. And with the help of, of Zeus and Neptune... A couple other gods, Apollo's mother flees to safety until this dragon, Python, is passed. The woman gives birth to Apollo, and then a four-day-old Apollo tracks down the dragon and defeats him. It's a similar uh, mythological account in the Egyptian world. 
And so, so John is here. He's tapping into that. He's tapping into his, his original audience's familiarity with that story. He's borrowing elements of that myth in order to tell the truth, in order to correct and change the characters in the drama, to infuse it with elements of the biblical story, to tell God's story of redemption, the story not behind the story of Revelation, but to portray it in a new and powerful and piercing way. So what is this story? Friends, this is the story of Christmas. This is a story we know quite well. This is the story of the incarnation. The sun and the moon and the 12 stars were called Joseph's dream in Genesis chapter 37. His brothers uh, one day bowing down to him, perhaps implying here that the woman's seed, the woman's child, is a new and greater Joseph. Woman's labor pains recall other biblical descriptions of Israel during the exile period in which they were defeated by surrounding peoples, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and many of them were taken into exile. The time during that period is described in this way, a time of trouble seemingly interrupting the fulfillment of God's plans to send a king and a Messiah. She represents the faithful remnant of Israel, the true Israel, the believing community that is the antecedent to the church and, I think, according to God's word here, becomes the bride of Christ, verse 17. For the rest of her offspring are described as those who trust and follow Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 17. How is she depicted here? She is robed in righteousness, garments of salvation, and crowned with jewels. For she is the believing community that births the Messiah and the church. The male child, woman's son, is not portrayed here as a sign, but as a person, a real person. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ child, the promised and sent Savior from God to deliver sinners and to rule the nation. So in review, character number one, the woman represents the believing community that birthed the Messiah in the church. Character number three, the the son is uh, the son of God and the Savior of the world. That leaves character number two, the dragon. The dragon represents the devil. In case we're in any doubt about that, John tells us this much in verse nine of this chapter. And there he alludes to Genesis chapter 3 and the serpent that deceived Eve, resulting in terrible consequences for all of creation as a result of sin. The words of one pastor, the image of the vulnerable but victorious woman goes back to Eve, whose seed will crush the head of the serpent. You see, church, Satan is real, and he knows this. He's familiar with this account. He's familiar with this story. He knows his fate. He's familiar with God's word. And since the fall of humanity, he's remembered, I'm sure, God's words to him in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God said, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so the devil, that ancient serpent depicted as a dragon, made every effort to foil God's plan, to defeat him by attacking the woman's seed. And don't miss the irony in the story. But the devil looked like he had all the advantages. A mighty dragon. Described here in in a way to depict horror. A mighty dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on those heads. And a powerful tail convincing one third of heaven's angels to join him in in rebellion. That figure against a pregnant woman. But even so, he didn't have a chance. He had no chance. His fate was doomed the moment he chose to oppose the almighty God. You see, Satan tried and failed to foil God's plan by destroying the Messiah. 
Satan tried and failed to foil God's plan by destroying the Messiah. John depicts this as if it's already happened. This is past tense. He is defeated. He knew the woman's seed would be his own undoing and defeat, and so he tried to destroy him. But he failed, church. He failed miserably. That's the story behind the story. That's the story, the cosmic story behind the story of our lives. There's an enemy who hates God and humanity, who loves sin, and who sought to interrupt God's plan of redeeming sinners through Christ, but he couldn't do it. He could not do it. Here again how John describes the brevity and ease with which Christ conquers the dragon. So here, uh, the verses leading up to this, uh, poise this scene, this mighty dragon, ready to devour this child. The child is born, verse 5, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. That's it. The child was snatched up. Delivered to safety, snatched up to God and to His throne. The nativity story, the sinless life, the substitutionary sacrifice, the triumphant resurrection, and the glorious ascension collapsed in a single verse. A one-act drama. In the words of one theologian, John impresses upon us the real meaning of Christmas. God defeats the enormous red dragon with a baby who is Christ the Lord. John's nativity scene gives us the meaning of the manger. Listen to another author's take. He says, when Jesus died on the cross, it looked like Satan conquered. But God turned certain and total defeat, his own people rejecting and crucifying the Messiah, into the victory that saves the world. When it looked like the last defense against evil had fallen, Christ rose from the dead, decisively breaking the back of evil. Friends, we believe in a God whose plans are certain, whose power is unrivaled, whose position is sovereign and whose enemy is conquered so we can trust Him. We can trust Him. Do you trust Him? Are you trusting this God? The one who is victorious. Are you trusting in the victory of Jesus Christ already accomplished yet awaiting final consummation? Friend, you can, you can know Christ's victory. You can trust Him. You can know His victory and you can take His victory as your victory by trusting in Him. For when you do, He claims you as His very own. You see, Satan tried and failed to foil God's plan by destroying the Messiah. But since he failed, he unleashes his fury, his anger on God's people. Satan now aims to destroy God's people, but he is doomed to fail. Satan now makes it his aim to destroy God's people, but he is doomed to fail. After the Messiah's decisive victory, John says, verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Numbers are significant in Revelation. We were introduced to this number last week, variously depicted in this book, in the book of Revelation, as 1,260 days or 42 months or a time, times, and half a time. A three and a half year period of persecution with deep biblical roots. Allusions to this all over the Old Testament. Believed by some to be a literal three and a half year period or a literal seven year period prior to the return of Christ. And Believed by others to symbolize the entire span of time between Christ's first coming and His second coming as a time of persecution and of waiting for the consummation of Christ's kingdom. Now, we're not going to major on that today because that's secondary. Perhaps even tertiary in the significance of this overarching drama because the emphasis lies more on the kind of time, I believe, than it does the length of time. Either way, either way, the opposition of the world and the witness of Christ's followers that goes on in this time that's being described here is paradigmatic for the entire church age. 
So what do we learn from it? What do we learn from John's description of this tribulation and Satan's attempts to destroy God's people? We learn that God provides ultimate refuge for his people. God is a God who provides ultimate refuge for his people. The elements of this story, the language of this cosmic drama is meant to recall the story in the wilderness. You see, as God uh, provided with the manna and the quell and the water in the wilderness, God protects and provides for his church as she awaits the great wedding of the bride and the lamb. The joining together of Christ and his church. And just as that exodus generation of God's people was called to trust and worship the God through the temporary provision of animal sacrifices as they wandered in a place that was not their permanent home. So we too are called to trust and to worship the Lord through the provision of Christ's permanent sacrifice as we wander in a place that is not our permanent home. You see, God's provision for His people here, His provision here on this earth, on this side of heaven, is only a foretaste of His permanent provision for us in heaven. God provides ultimate refuge for His people, but God's people are not exempt from suffering. God's people are not exempt from from suffering. He is a God who cares, who provides, who protects, who gives us what we need, but that does not mean that we're exempt from suffering. Revelation is clear on this. In fact, all of the Bible is clear on this. The human experience is clear on this. Suffering is real in this sin-stained world. God's people are not immune, but it is of limited duration. It will not last forever. 1,260 days of tribulation clearly declare that though the devil may appear ferocious, He may uh, have widespread influence in the world even now. He is not like the Energizer Bunny that keeps on going and going and going. His power will not last forever, for the suffering of God's people will soon pass. The Bible declares again and again that the suffering of God's people will soon pass. Tragedies and turmoil, hardships and hate abound in this life as a result of human sin and satanic opposition. But we know, Christians, that our light and momentary troubles, Paul says our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And when he said our light and momentary troubles, I don't think he was thinking of small stuff. I don't think he was thinking of a minor, a minor glitch in our, our schedule or maybe a, a slight headache. He was thinking of some heavy stuff. He went through some hard stuff. But he was saying, compared to the eternal glory that awaits us, those who know and follow the Lamb of God and Savior of the world are light. Our stuff here is light. It's momentary. It's fleeting. It will not last forever. A British evangelist and missionary by the name of C.T. Studd understood this. He understood the fleeting nature of this life with all its joys and sorrows, leading him to pen a now famous poem with these words. He wrote, only what's done for Christ will last. He said, only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Friends, only what's done for Christ in this life will last because Christ Jesus is the one who will last. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the eternal King. He is the one now reigning and who will come again. Christ decisively defeated Satan by ascending and now reigning on high. I think this is the central message of this text. 
Christ is victorious. He decisively defeated Satan by ascending to heaven and now reigning on high. In other words, the battle is won. The outcome is certain. Christ and those who are his will overcome that ancient serpent, that great tempter, that roaring lion and the red dragon by knowing the one who overcomes. Do you know the one who overcomes? Friend, do you know the one who overcomes? Do you know the Savior? Do you know the Messiah? Do you know the victorious one? Are you living for him as you await the return of the king? As you await to go home with him? Believer, you can take comfort today. Take comfort in knowing the one who overcomes. Regardless of what you are facing in this life, regardless of the trouble and turmoil, regardless of what are highs or lows you may be facing here, you and I are called to take comfort in knowing the one who overcomes. Knowing Christ Jesus should be the most comforting truth we know. Do you know Him? Do you know the King? Do you know Jesus the Christ? Have you trusted in Him? Are you trusting in Him? Do you know the champion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of God's throne? Friend, do you know Jesus the Christ? You see, even as we face opposition here, trials here, pain here, perhaps persecution here, disease here, even death here, Paul says we do not lose heart. As Christians, we face these things just like everyone else, but we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. In other words, we're dying physically. Uh, Outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The words of Christ the King himself. John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. It doesn't say you're going to have peace in this life. It doesn't say you're going to have peace in this world. He says, in me, you will have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, he says. I have overcome the world. Friends, take comfort in knowing the one who overcomes. And because we know the one who overcomes, let's engage the world with the gospel until Christ comes again. Let's be faithful to the story. The story of God redeeming lost and broken, sinful, rebellious people through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's engage the world with that story, with that gospel, until Christ Jesus comes again. This past week, just a few days ago, I had an opportunity to visit with Harold Hancock in the hospital for a bit. Many of you know Harold. He's one of our seniors here. He's been dealing with Parkinson's for several years now, and Over the last few days, he's had a bad case of pneumonia. There he was in the hospital, hooked up to all sorts of things. No doubt uncomfortable. It's obvious. In the midst of all that, as we're talking, he he said to me, he said, uh, you know, the most difficult things in life may be our greatest opportunities to share the gospel. What a message. The most difficult things in life may be our greatest opportunities to share the gospel. The gospel, brothers and sisters, this world is not our home. This is not our permanent dwelling place. Our home is with Jesus. And so in the words of Paul himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, we fix our eyes.